Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 130 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Sup. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Supper. Supper. Okay. Ooh, yummy. I'm the suppest. Uh, this bit did die. As I recall, <laughs> yeah, this bit went away died, for a while. and now it's back? Here's the thing, guys. I can never die. Dylan's family <laughs> motto is commit to the bit. That's true. Yeah, but he didn't. He stopped committing to the bit for a while, and then it came alive like a Frankenstein. It's called a callback, <laughs> Andrew. Sorry, a Frankenstein's monster. I was going to say. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we are a book podcast. Oh, speaking oh, of. Of course, I'm so sorry. I just need to share this. That Speaking of Frankenstein, there are these books for kids called Lit for Little Hands. And Maggie has um, the Midsummer Night's Dream one. And there's a Frankenstein one, which is what made me think of it. But I just ordered her a new one. Can you guess what book it is? Dracul. No. They're not going to guess it. Les Mis. Les Mis, yes. Whoa. Toby guessed it. I got it. You got to keep in that Dylan doubted Toby so that we can (laughs) rub it in his face. That wasn't even that hard of a thing to guess, Dylan. She just read it for the podcast. It was a pretty one-to-one. I'm very excited to see how they put it into kids' book form. Yeah, I'm excited, too. And Fantine just went away. Don't worry about what she was doing. (laughs) Yeah. It has pop-up elements, so we'll see. Okay. (laughs) Lit for Little Hands sounds like like a music festival, but for children. Ooh. It's like lit. Like, let's get lit. lit. Yeah. For Little Hands. It sounds a little bit to me like a, a Christian festival. Like saying yeah. we we are little hands and then but we're gonna get lit so it's like extreme extreme teen Bible sort of thing. What is what is Jesus if not a big hand? Hi everybody. Hey, uh, what's up? Does anybody have well? As we go into our regularly scheduled um, section where we talk about our shame, the books we <laughs> we bought. I need the world to know that I don't have any book shame because I have some life shame. What? Oh okay. I was did you un- kill again, Bailey? I did kill again. No, I was yeah. unable to get any new books aside from when I ordered the Les Miserables because, mm-hmm. Pedro's will remember, uh, last time I was getting ready to go back to work, first day back, everybody will remember, so I spent yes. a solid four hours at my desk, and then it was lunchtime, Ooh. and I left the office, and I was walking across the street to get some lunch, and I fell and twisted my ankle, and... I sprained my ankle, I tore a ligament, and bruised my bone, and I'm back at home, and I can't walk. So so I've been... Sorry, I was reacting as though I did not know this. I I was going to say, I feel like you guys know this, but it's good to react. (laughs) (laughs) It feels awfully cold just to be like, yeah, I knew that. Yeah, whatever. Well, yeah, I just didn't want it to seem like, oh, Bailey, I've been ignoring your text for the last (laughs) week. I had to just sort of sit on the side of the road while I waited for Dylan to pick me up, Um, and... Then we went to the podiatrist, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's four weeks non-weight bearing. No, yeah, four weeks no weight bearing, two weeks weight bearing, then physical therapy if it all goes well. But if it does, then I'll be able to walk at Andrew's wedding. So let's just hope it's all okay. But it's prevented me from going to any bookstores. Well, there's always a silver lining, isn't there? <laughs> yes. And if you're wondering, Pejos, I did have to provide a doctor's note to my office because I think they secretly thought that I was lying and trying to get out of working from the office. Yeah. That is pretty funny that you were there for half a day and then you were like, throw myself into the street. And my husband <laughs> had to pick me up. Uh, no, it was very embarrassing. Um, so, yeah. So I don't have any shame, but do you guys have any shame? I have zero shame. I have no shame at all. Oh, good. Typical Toby, completely living his life without shame. Yes. Um, I don't have shame in the traditional sense. 
Okay. Um, in that I haven't purchased any books, but I, have y'all peeked at your your reading uh, your reading goals for the year? Yeah, the I'm five. Challenge. Yeah. I'm five books behind. Okay, Dude, then this too. isn't as big of a shame. I'm I'm from four books behind. My goals was far less uh, ambitious than either of yours. <laughs> so I gotta put some pep in my step. Stop watching D and D streams and, uh, and put my face in some books. Do you guys want to explain what the reading challenge is? Well, this this is our Goodreads goal, where I think mine is seventy five books. I don't know what your guys is, but yeah, no, I checked it and it was like. You are five books behind schedule. And I was like, how dare you? You don't know me. You know what? That makes, honestly, I have been feeling really bad about that because I'm about the same. I think I'm five books or maybe even more behind schedule. And you know what it's like? If you're behind schedule this early in the year, things is in bad shape. And I was really worried about it. But you know what? It makes me feel happy that you guys are right there with me. (laughs) None of us are reading any books. Did you guys have the same thought I did, which is, I got to get some graphic novels or poetry (laughs) or novellas up in here. I wonder if you can type into the books you read, Bailey. If you type in uh, Les Mis, it'll give you like 10. I feel like it should count as 10, but yeah. At least three. Well, wait, did you read Les Mis or did you read the Lit for Little Hands Les Mis? It is weird that they both count as one book. Well, Andrew, I feel like you thought we were going to dunk on you for that, but... I think we're even worse off than you are. (laughs) Yeah, well, no, it's good. To be fair, dunk away because your goals are literally more than double me, I think, for both of you. What's your goal? 36. Okay. So I think that if I were were in your position, I would be like eight books behind. So Uh, I can still be dunked upon a little bit, but perhaps not posterized. Well, (laughs) I will dunk upon myself and sort of skip ahead a bit and let dear readers, dear pages know that Because I sprained my ankle, all I wanted to do was lie in bed and watch True Crime and Bridgerton. And so I actually, for the first time ever, did not finish Fingersmith. I started it, but I did not finish it. And this has never happened before. It's not short. I'll tell you that. It's not. So I I was like, oh, I can do it. I I finished my book and I was going to start yours, Toby. And then I was Mm going to read the audiobook, and it was 23 hours. I was like, I can't do that. I don't have time. I like it so far. That's my review. (laughs) Good. Well, speaking of Toby, I want to hear what you have to say about the book you read. Uh, Toby, what book did you read this week? I read Fingersmith by Sarah Waters. Fingers, fingers. Something about that title just makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, the title is a little bit ooky. I don't Um, think fingers should exist outside of being a part of a hand, I think is what I'm learning. (laughs) Well, fingersmith means like a thief, right? Like a pickpocket? Yeah, like a pickpocket. Okay. Um. Well, see, I just got think that I, far, I right? think fingers are upsetting in a way that I'm only learning now. Were you yeah. traumatized by salad fingers, Andrew? Mm. No. The only thing that traumatized me growing up was when you made me eat styrofoam. What? I made you eat styrofoam? <laughs> yes. You told me it was Halloween. You told me it was what vampires ate. What? I was dressed as a vampire and I ate a bunch of styrofoam. What? What? Wow. You don't remember this? No. Move on. To- well, leaving it there. Toby, take it away. No. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. All I want to know, all I want to know is it like, was it packing peanuts or was it like a big block that you were chewing on? Both things. Both? Mostly Both? packing peanuts. <laughs> it was mostly packing peanuts, but I think I took a bite of a big thing too. What? Wow. I have no Andrew, memory of this. Your commitment to being a vampire was very high. Thank you. All right. Well, on that note. On that note, Fingersmith. All right. Here's your log line. Just like the pickpockets that the novel's title references, Sarah Waters' Fingersmith will distract you with its finely drawn characters, deft prose, and its twisting story of desperation, desire, and deceit, so that you only discover too late it has stolen your heart. Ooh. Spicy. (laughs) Toby, are you trying to get on a book jacket cover? Yeah. Blurb me, Sarah Waters. Blurb me. (laughs) 
Um, let's do a little plot summary. So, our main character, Susan Trinder, is a borough girl in London. Uh, she's happy enough among her den of thieves under the protective wing of her fierce adoptive mother, Mrs. Suxby, when all of a sudden Richard Gentleman Rivers arrives one day to propose a plan. He knows of a certain young lady, Maud Lilly, who lives with her uncle all alone in a brooding mansion far out in the country. If Maud can be persuaded to abandon her uncle, run away, and marry Rivers, then she will come into the massive fortune that is her due upon marrying. And Rivers's plan, once she marries him, is to immediately frame her as being insane and get her locked up in the madhouse. All he needs is Susan's help. And Susan is going to travel with him to the house, and she's going to become Maud's lady's maid. So she's kind of inseparable. She spends all day long with Maud and is her confidant and her friend. And she's going to use this position to convince Maud to fall in love with Richard Rivers uh, so that they can defraud her and put her in the madhouse. Everything goes pretty well until certain bonds between Maud and Susan that neither of them expect begin to form. And things only get more and more complicated from there. Things do not go according to plan. <laughs> Certainly not. That'd be very different for these kind of books where it's like, everything went according to plan. And then they made the plan and then they executed it exactly as they said and the end. Honestly, I always find myself really wanting that, especially in like TV yeah. shows. I'm like, I just want this to go well. And then I realize there's a reason that it's a TV show <laughs> and not just like a record of something that happened. It's funny that you mentioned that because I, I was thinking about this book and even if like... Basically, this book, if that was just a straight plot and it did go to plan, that's already packed with drama. Yeah. Right? Like, mm -hmm. it's already pretty intense and, and suspenseful and dramatic. But obviously, things don't go to plan. And it's even more exciting than that. Yes. Um, so I'm going to do my Orcs and Elves as a review of the separate parts of the book. This book is separated into three parts. And I'm going to review them in order and kind of give you my Elves and Orcs because they're related to those books. Cool, cool. Um, so the first part of the book is probably one of the most perfect potboiler thrillers that I've ever read. It starts off really slow. We're with Susan in London, and Richard comes and does the plan, and then they travel to the house, and she's living with Maud, and it, it just has that amazing, suspenseful, slow creep of pressure until when you reach the end of the first part, things you just feel like you're going to explode. The tension is so high. Things are so overcranked, and it's so exciting. You're just like flipping pages as fast as you can. So uh, that is basically, um, this first part is so fantastic. It's filled with water's amazing prose um, that for most of the time, just is kind of plain and direct, but every once in a while, she hits you over the head with one of these perfect images that really come out of nowhere because the rest of the prose is, is pretty straightforward. And I just, I found myself over and over again being impressed with her prose. Yeah, she, I think she's an incredible writer just from the little bit I read. Yeah. Now, I don't want to give anything away, um, but I think that probably if you're interested in reading this book, you might know um, that there is a bit of a same-sex romance that goes on in this book. And I don't want to give too much away, but all I will say, if we're reviewing the spicy bits of this book, I will say, grade A, spicy. Very spicy, very good. Um, and that's all I'll say about that. How many meatballs on a scale of one to five? A spicy meatball. <laughs> well, it's not about the amount of meatballs. It's the spice level of said balls. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Andrew is the cook among us. Um, and then um, I will say, uh, there is not just one twist in this book. There end up being like 10. <laughs> um, but I would say, especially towards the beginning of the book, and especially in the first section, in this first book, 
the twists are the most satisfying kind where you have no idea it's coming until like maybe one page before it's officially revealed. And you have like one of my favorite experiences in reading is where you're reading and you're like, no, no, oh, no way. And then you like and then it happens and you're like, I'm so smart because I figured it out like a page ahead. Um, So that's my review of book one or part one of this book. So the second part um, is basically a rug pull um, in this most delightful way. All I will say is that the first section of the book, you are in Susan's perspective while she executes this plan. And then the second half of the book or second part of the book, you are in Maud's perspective. Um, And you get basically that delightful experience of all of these things are revealed, all this nasty, horrible backstory and all these creepy facts about everything. If I ended the first part thinking this is a really great suspenseful book with some like pretty good characters, the second part really triples down and everybody gets more dimensions and more things to do and more beautiful writing about them. It's amazing. This is, um, they made the movie The Handmaiden based on it. And I remember yeah, like right. the first part ending was like, is the movie already over? And it was like, oh, wait. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, and then I'll say just a couple more elves in this section, which is Waters' dialogue really gets cooking in this second uh, section because characters are allowed to be much more truthful mm-hmm. and they're kind of more directly at loggerheads with each other and really sparking a lot of conflict. Um, so the dialogue, I think, only gets better and better throughout the book. And then one other thing I really enjoyed about the book is you can tell she did her research. There's all these weird little details and strange things that the characters do that are period appropriate that just make it a delight to read because you're like learning things while you're reading the book and they and they not only they're not just put in there sometimes i feel like authors do it where they're like i did this research see (laughs) but she does it in a way that is character appropriate so you will see something bizarre and then it will be character appropriate for the time a really great example of this is in part one there's a very intimate scene where Maud, the lady, has a sharp tooth, like one of her teeth in the back of her mouth is kind of cutting her cheek. And uh, Susan does this thing that's common at the time, which is she puts a thimble on her finger and reaches in Maud's mouth and like kind of sands it down with the thimble. It's just that kind of detail where it rings true. It seems like something they would do at the time. And it's this incredible character moment because, you know, they're Things are happening, and this plan is happening, and oh, it's just amazing. Okay, so now we'll move on to part three and a couple of my orcs. First of all, this book is very long. <laughs> um, like, you know, not Les Mis long, but pretty long. I and mean, I think in part three, you, you do start to think like, okay, I, I really, this is really going all over the place, and is it going to wrap up in time? Um, and I would also say, as I mentioned before, there's like 10 twists, mm-hmm. and there's a particular scene in which like, Four twists in a row are revealed in such short succession that me as the reader, I was kind of confused as to where I even was. I was like, <laughs> literally as if someone was like spinning me around. And I was like, uh, okay, I, I think I'm following all this. Like, <laughs> so the, the twists can get, I think, a little over twisted. And then um, because it's so long, um, one of the things I really like about the book is it's very grim. It's very dark all morally gray characters all really duking it out and being nasty to each other um and that can be a little wearing when you're in like you know you're nearing hour 18 of this audiobook so at that point in in book three or part three i was like oh i don't know like 
I love this so much, and is it slipping? And then the end came in, and it kicked butt, and I loved it. And I'm giving this book five stars. Everyone should read it. It's so great. How many fingers? Um, Smith fingers. <laughs> oh, and I have, <laughs> I do have this little thing that I wanted to say at the end, which I wrote down, which is. Overall, I found Fingersmith to be an incredibly well-written book that manages to be a love story, a horror story, a set of treatises on sexism, homophobia, and pornography, and above all, a deeply satisfying thriller that executes on every promise it lays out. Hot. I would say this is in probably top five books I've read for the podcast of all time. Ooh. I loved this book. Goes into the Toby Hall of Fame. Mm Mm-hmm. Well... I'm currently reading it, as I said. I'm excited to finish it even more now. Um, I'm glad to know that it sticks the ending. I, I also recommend it based on the 80 pages I read. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, Andrew, do you have any facts on Miss Sarah Waters? Yes. Yeah, I'm really curious. I do have The Little Stranger on my list as well, so she might pop up later. Ooh, Excellent. exciting. I was wondering. I thought I, I thought there was another one on yeah. there. Yeah. All right, so Sarah Waters, OBE, put some respect on the name, is a Welsh author born on July 21st, 1966 in Neeland, Pembrokeshire, Wales. So she grew up in Wales. Uh, She moved to Middlesbrough in uh, Yorkshire in England when she was eight. Her father worked for oil refineries and actually, and along with Waters' mother, encouraged Sarah from a very young age uh, to nurture like learning and curiosity that was very important in her in her upbringing. Uh, she would be the first uh, person in her family to attend university, and it was all based on like a very nurturing home life, which I thought was nice. Unlike um, a lot of the other authors we, we research, she was like, "Yeah, no, it was great." Um, <laughs> Her father, in particular, encouraged her to create, invent, and build. Uh, This is a quote from Waters. When I picture myself as a child, I see myself constructing something out of plasticine or paper mache. She also wrote poems and stories, though she said she didn't think it would become her career. However, best laid plans. Another quote from Waters here. Um, This is about specifically knowing from a young age if she wanted to be a writer. I don't know if I thought about it much, really. I know that for a long time, I wanted to be an archaeologist, like lots of kids. And I think I knew I was headed for university, even though no one else in my family had been. I really enjoyed learning. I remember my mother telling me that I might one day go to university and write a thesis and explaining what a thesis was. And it seemed like a very exciting prospect. I was clearly a bit of a nerd. Yeah, Bailey. I was going to say, this sounds like Bailey. <laughs> How dare you? That is adorable. We need to get thesis for little hands. I'm all in. <laughs> Um, she did indeed go to university. Uh, she received her BA from the University of Kent and then went on to receive her master's and PhD from a couple different uh, institutions. Her work towards her doctorate, you know, what do you think she researched? Victorian horniness. I was going to say lesbian Victorian ladies. Well, okay, let me just give you the title of her her. <laughs> Her doctorate. Is it uh, lesbian Victorian? I was going to say, why? Bailey just gave you it. <laughs> it was called Wolfskins and Togas, colon, Lesbian and Gay Historical Fictions, 1870 to the Present. Hey! What did I just say? Go. Well, Toby Pretty said it too. Pretty close. Uh, yeah, and so she researched extensively, including um, Victorian pornography, uh, where she came across the term tipping the velvet, uh, which is not podcast appropriate if I explain what it means, uh, but look (laughs) it up on your own time if you'd like, which would become the title of her first novel. She cites her influences as a writer, as uh, Wilkie Collins, Charles Dickens, Angela Carter, Mary Shelley, some contemporary writers, uh, also A.S. Byatt and John Fowles, and also the Brontes, not contemporary. (laughs) (laughs) 
So yeah, she went full bore into academia. If you're wondering how she started writing, she kind of just did. Uh, <laughs> she got her doctorate and then like pivoted right to writing Tipping the Velvet. Um, and she supported herself as a, as a professor and, and, and earned her, her, her keep that way. But Tipping the Velvet, she finished it in the late 90s. It was published in 1998. It was successful, received several awards, was adapted to a BBC miniseries. And this Ooh. is sort of the pattern of her work now. She comes out with a novel. It gets made into a BBC miniseries and uh, <laughs> it gets well received and people love it. It's great. Love it. Do you know if they made Fingersmith into a BBC series oh, as well as... Oh, did they? Yeah. They did. Um, yep. So... She followed this up with more novels. Uh, Affinity came out in 1999. Fingersmith was her third novel. It came out in 2002. Then The Night Watch in 2006. The Little Stranger in 2009. And The Paying Guests in 2014. Most of them have been adapted, as I said. And to answer your question, Fingersmith was adapted into a BBC miniseries, a two-parter, uh, starring Sally Hawkins, Elaine Cassidy, and Imelda Staunton. Interesting. Cool. And then, yes, there was the 2006 uh, reimagining in a Japanese-occupied Korea called The Handmaiden, which came out in 2016. Um, she came out in her early 20s and began a relationship with Lucy Vaughn, a copy editor, in the early 2000s, and they've been together ever since. Uh, she says she doesn't mind being referred to as a lesbian writer, but points out that classifying her work as lesbian historical fiction, which it sometimes gets categorized as, assumes that historical fiction is by its nature heterosexual. So she makes right. that slight distinction, but is, you know, very proudly lesbian, loves being identified with the community and doesn't mind being referred to as a lesbian writer. But I did want to point out that quote because I thought it was an interesting distinction to make. Yeah, I haven't thought about yeah. that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, definitely. Waters was elected a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature in 2009 and appointed an officer of the Order of the British Empire, OBE, in 2019. She lives in London. And David Bowie listed Fingersmith as one of his top 100 books. Type. What? Oh, man, he would kill it as the gentleman. Yeah, he would. And those are my facts about Sarah Waters. Excellent facts. I am very excited to read this and also to read The Little Stranger, which I think is more yeah, ghost me too, ghosty. Now. Ooh. That's Fingersmith by Sarah Waters. Five stars. Five fingers. Five yeah. freaking stars. Yeah. Um, Bailey. Yes. I heard that not only did you read a book, you found the inspiration for your cat's whole personality this past week. <laughs> well, you might say that I traveled to Nolens this past week, and I did meet a certain mm, gentleman scholar named Ignatius J. Riley. Do you think I can do the entire section in this voice? If you no. do, I will quit the podcast. <laughs> please, please don't. It's been my life this entire past week. Yes, I did read a book. I won't do it in the voice, although I really want to. I read A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. Dunce, dunce, dunce. Dunce, 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 dunce. <laughs> so I know Toby's read this. Dylan's read this. Have you read this one, Andrew? No. No. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Very aggressive here, but no, I have not. And just to give myself a break already before anything, I read this so long ago. I don't, I remember, I think I only remember Dr. Nutt. And that's it. <laughs> okay, well, let me tell you about it then. Confederacy of Dunces, for those who don't know or haven't read it, it is a picaresque novel. What is a picaresque novel? Does anybody know? Dylan? Oh, this is Teacher Bailey coming out right it now. It means you pick it. Can I go to the bathroom? <laughs> I don't know, can you? Can I, may I go outside? Um, <laughs> picaresque, adjective, relating to an episodic style of fiction dealing with the adventures of a rough and dishonest but appealing hero. So example would be Don Quixote, 
Uh, end of list. End of list. But Don Quixote. And what's the one with the Lilliputians? Uh, Gulliver's Travels. Gulliver's Travels is another one. So, okay. Uh, we follow the character Ignatius J. Riley. He is one of the best characters I've ever read in literature. He is like mm. so iconic. My basic Googling shows that there is a statue of him literally in New Orleans. Oh, he's no. so iconic. I didn't know that. Ignatius J. Riley. He's a 30-year-old man. He lives at home with his mother. He is huge, gargantuan. He wears a very particular outfit, which is um, a large flannel, but because his stomach is so large, he can barely button it. Um, a muffler, a green hunting cap where the little edges, what are they called? The little leaves? Flaps. Flaps De- stick a deer stalker. Up. Yeah. And he has a big mustache that has food stuck in it. And he loves to eat hot dogs and he likes to drink his soda, Dr. Nut, which is what Toby referenced. That's all I got. He has a master's degree. He went to college for 10 years. So he's overeducated, but underemployed. So this is our character and this is the person we're going to follow. And essentially the plot is the misadventures of Ignatius J. Riley going Mm. around New Orleans. And basically it starts, he's waiting for his mother outside a department store and a cop comes up thinking that he is sort of a suspicious looking guy and asks for identification. It creates a whole scene and that one interaction splits the story into many um, farcical plots. Ignatius has to get a job and so he's trying all of these different jobs and meeting all of these crazy characters around the city and they all come together in a fun way in the end. So when people talk about this book, they talk about how funny it is. And I think I do think it's really funny. Ignatius is a hilarious character. And I think what makes him so funny is his dialogue. He has such a specific voice. Andrew referenced this. I I kept thinking of my cat saying the things he says because my cat is also quite rotund and lazy. (laughs) So this is a quote. Um, This is right in the beginning when the cop accosts him outside of the uh, department store. And the cop asks if he has a job. And his mom says, oh, no, he has to help me at home because I have arthritis. And Ignatius tells the policeman, I dust a bit. In addition, I'm at the moment writing a lengthy indictment against our century. When my brain begins to reel from my literary labors, I make an occasional cheese dip. <laughs> that, that That's just the biggest elf, is the character. Obviously, like, you would never want to meet this person in real life, but to follow his adventures... Heck yes. Yeah. You just want to, more and more things to go wrong. Um, it also, I'm just impressed with the book. I'm not going to spoil any of Andrew's facts, but the um, circumstances of its publishing are very interesting. And just the fact that it was completed, like nobody edited it. This person yeah. came up with it all on his own and wrote it all on his own and it, it won the Pulitzer. I just think it's amazing that the author could have such a wonderful idea and execute it so well. I do have some orcs. It's hard because obviously the novel is of a time period and we're following people who are not good people, but it's just kind of hard. There's a lot of like racism and homophobia and sexism, but that's like part of the characters. It's such a tricky thing like because the author, if they are portraying uh, the person saying these things as a bad person, then that feels more acceptable. But then in the case of like an Ignatius, like, oh, he's supposed to be not a great guy, but you have a lot of affection for him. It's definitely a case for Ignatius, but for me, it's more the, there's sort of a secondary character named Burma Jones, and he is a young black man who runs into the policeman at the police station, and we follow his story for a while, and he's written in dialect, um, he uses the N-word a lot, 
Um, he talks about how people are treating him like a slave, etc. It's like the characters are treating him badly and he is discriminated against because of his race, but it also feels like the author is doing that because they're creating the mm. situation. I don't know. It just felt that part felt a little muddy to me. And I don't think it's a fast read. Like I had to read this for the podcast. So I read it over a number of days and I think it would be better as a slow burn, especially when you're reading because there's sections of it that are Ignatius's like treatise and they're mm-hmm. written like mm-hmm. in this high academic that. style that like it's hard to binge read it. So all this to say I, I'm giving it four stars. I really liked it. I'm going to remember this character forever. I'm going to remember Dr. Nut forever. Um, but mm. I wouldn't say it's my favorite ever because I think there are some parts that just made me feel a little icky. Yeah. So that's my yeah. review. What did you think of the book, Dill? I mean, I I really like the book. I would give it five stars. I think the complicated part is that, yes, Ignatius is also a really over-the-top character, but it's not like Ignatius is interacting in the real world. The rest of the world is also crazy. Yeah. Like, every supporting character has also a different, either weird point of view or a crazy personality flaw. And I thought that was one of the cool parts of the book is that Ignatius draws you in initially, but then you realize he has such a good way of inventing weird characters that have their own weird worldview. Yeah, it's it's yeah. like kind of like a Wes Anderson movie. There's this exactly yeah. weirdo characters, but that are they're colorful. Wes Anderson is like a perfect example. It's like very stylized across the board, and so he seems to be in control of everything. So yeah, um, Andrew, I've been sort of teeing you up here. Do you have any facts on you know the circumstances of the publishing, or maybe like a movie adaptation, or Anything about the author, maybe? I didn't know I was supposed to prepare facts, miss. So I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> can I go to the bathroom? <laughs> can I go to the... Can we have class outside? Um, <laughs> John Kennedy Toole. Uh, John Kennedy Toole was born on December 17th, 1937 in, you guessed it, New Orleans, Louisiana. The Big Easy. He had a middle-class upbringing and was encouraged uh, in his cultural pursuits from a young age by his mother, Thelma, who was a big influence in his life, exercised a huge influence on him and sometimes leading to a troubled relationship. Like, she was very much, like, managing who he was hanging out with, what he was doing, trying to, like, make him the best version of what she wanted him to be. So there's some natural bristling there. If you were his friend, you probably would have called him Ken because he went by Ken up until just shortly before he died. Everybody called him Ken instead of John. Tool's father was a car salesman, and his mother uh, stopped working when she had Tool, but continued uh, tutoring students in music, speech, and performance. To that end, as a child, he had success performing in a troupe, which was arranged by his mother, um, and drew praise for his humor and his impressions in particular. He was like a child performer in several productions. He modeled for newspaper ads, and he even emceed a uh, radio show. Ooh. Man, it sounds like he's more John Kennedy cool. <laughs> <laughs> You're a monster. Um, he was an excellent student, received many academic accolades, including winning the Louisiana version of Boys State, which at that point was called Pelican State. Ooh. So there, king of the Pelicans. And he also received a full scholarship to study at Tulane, which is a university in New Orleans. During his senior year in high school, he also found time to write his first novel, which was titled The Neon Bible. He would later dismiss it as an adolescent attempt at mimicking Flannery O'Connor. Um, he did send it out to a few publishers, but but no one uh, published it within his lifetime. He studied hard at Tulane, continuing um, to like really throw himself into work, though he also found himself attracted to less academic pursuits, befriending musicians and developing an interest in the beat poets. Uh, one of his friends uh, was a guitarist named Steve Cha-Cha. Cool. Yeah. 
who had a tamale cart, a job that Tool would sometimes fill in for, which I know uh, was an influence on the Confederacy of Dunces, but replaced the hot dogs with tamales because apparently Tool would just eat the tamales instead of doing a great job with his work. Um, he completed an English degree with honors and went on to get an advanced degree at Columbia. Tool intended to return to Columbia to get his PhD, but first he went back to Louisiana and worked as a professor and to earn some cash. Uh, he was immensely popular and sought after for parties in particular. This is also where he met Bob Byrne, who is said to be a model for Ignatius. Um, oh, boy. He was an eccentric English professor who was quite large and wore a deerstalker cap. Ooh. Next, Tool uh, returned to New York City, uh, where he became the youngest professor in Hunter College's history at age 22. He, uh, his PhD studies continued but weren't going well um, at Columbia, and then he was drafted into the Army. His service was distinguished, but pretty atypical. He was sent to Puerto Rico to teach English to Spanish-speaking recruits because Tool was bilingual. Wow. As with like all the things he seemed to throw himself into, he quickly rose up the ranks, partially because he was motivated to become an officer or like a higher-ranking officer because he wanted a private office, because he was starting to write a book. And he was like, if I get an office, I can just hold myself up here and start writing this book. And Love he did. It. Respect. The book he was writing was A Confederacy of Dunces. He uh, left the army on compassionate leave to return home because his family was struggling economically, and so they wanted him home to help them. And so he returned to Louisiana, and he became a professor at a college called Dominican College, which is an all-girls Catholic college. He was incredibly popular as a teacher and used his downtime to finish the novel. He excitedly sent off a draft to Simon & Schuster, specifically to an agent who uh, had like sort of discovered Joseph Heller, um, had also like worked with people who worked with Pynchon and stuff like that. And he was like, I'm going to make it through this guy right here. The agent was convinced of Tool's talents, um, but said they couldn't publish the book. Tool kept trying to convince him to do it, including like surprising him by showing up in New York City. And it came down to one major criticism. The agent didn't think the book was about anything, despite really loving the writing. Uh, and Tool didn't want to change the book to that degree. Fair. Yeah. That was the the sticking point. Uh, so sadly, this um, coincides with the beginning of uh, severe uh, mental deterioration in Tool. He slowly became increasingly paranoid. He was convinced that there were listening devices in his home. He believed he was being followed, and he already always was sort of a heavy drinker, but he began to drink even more heavily. Some people I was reading like credit this all to his book being rejected. I should just say that his father showed similar paranoia, so I think it was also a genetic thing. I don't want the agent who rejected this book's like children to feel like they caused this directly. Yeah, th that's not fair. Yeah. 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 And so he like he retreated into himself. Uh, he at this point was living with his his parents. He only left the house to teach at the school. He was keeping up good appearances for a while, and then he began to sort of crumble professionally, too. And then he was forced to take a leave of absence from the college. He, at this point, was still trying to get his PhD, um, but he also had, was forced to leave that and gotten incomplete on his, on his studies. Um, all of this led to a, a huge blowout with his mother, specifically. And uh, he, one day, just took out the equivalent of about $12,000 from his bank account and then just drove away. And it's not known exactly what uh, Tool did in the last days of his life. Um, but on March 26, 1969, Tool died by suicide in Biloxi, Mississippi. Um, it is only due to the extreme determination from Tool's mother, Thelma, that we actually have any of the published work that he produced. Because the Confederacy of Dunces was long completed, but he had given up on it. And it was just literally sitting on an armoire in his like childhood bedroom. And so over seven years and a lot of like 
literally like bringing it to people who were like visiting professors. Thelma got one some person interested in the book and it was published only a few thousand copies in 1980. So this is 11 years after his death. And the book went on to win Tool, a posthumous Pulitzer Prize. It's been published and republished and republished since then. So. And for those yeah. interested, the person who discovered it or who said yes to it is author Walker Percy, who's also a famous um, New Orleans author. He writes a f- short foreword at the beginning of the book talking about how this woman kept bringing him the manuscript and he felt like he had to read it. And he's like, oh, this is going to be bad. Like the first paragraph, I know it's going to be bad. And he's like, oh, but this is really good. I remember the first time I read it, I thought that it was part of the book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's such yeah. a crazy thing. So good mother, Thelma. Yeah. They have tried to adapt this book into a movie many times, but there's said to be a curse on it. This project has continuously had stars attached to it or people attached to it who have then untimely passed away. So John Belushi was first attached to this project. Uh, Then John Candy, then Chris Farley. At one point, Mm -hmm. Sam Kinison, too, who also passed away untimely. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so this uh, has never been formally made into a movie, though it's constantly being in development. Uh, Last I heard, Stephen Fry had written a screenplay, but then that had sort of died on the vine. So we will see if it does indeed happen. Last rumor I saw was that Zach Galifianakis wanted to do it. Oh, no. So we will see what happens there. Yeah. Steven Soderbergh, I think, was the one that called it cursed. And it's like, you know how cursed of a movie you have to be for Steven Soderbergh not to direct it? He makes like two movies a year. I know. That's crazy. Those are my facts. Awesome. Excellent facts. All right. Well, that's A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. Four to five stars, I would say. Um, pick it up. Maybe you'll like it. Ooh. Pick it up. Now, Dylan, I heard that um, you wanted to redeem yourself from your game last time because your game last time was a little bit of a bummer. Okay, look. Uh, A little bit. (laughs) A little bit. It made me question if I had a playful spirit. (laughs) (laughs) Fundamentally, as a human man. (laughs) So I made a game that will not only help us, but might even get us a little bit of cash. Okay. See, I'm already suspicious. I'm not buying an NFT. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, we can make one. So the name of this game is Bon Vivant in 60 Seconds. Oh, that's a really good name, Dylan. This is, okay. we're starting off good. I'm, 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 wait, I'm just, no, I'm just going to say he overcommitted to a pun name last time too. <laughs> Here's the thing. The pun names are just good no matter what. Uh, so as you know, a huge point in the Fingersmith is that there's a character who is trained to read books for, basically she is a professional book reader. Like reading out loud. Reading out loud yes. for people to entertain them. Yes. Well, I've found some clientele that will do it. However, I have to run auditions first. Can I do it in a southern accent? The thing is, they <laughs> requested that you do it in a New Orleans accent. Oh! So you guys are all better be brushing up your patois. Oh, oh God. This is bad. Oh, <laughs> this is bad. it gets worse. <laughs> they had a very weird request for a very specific book from another famous doctor, a Dr. Seuss. Oh. <laughs> what I'm going to do is I'm going to text each one of you your different line. Okay. From the book... Fox and Socks. Oh. You will be graded. <laughs> this could be a tongue twister. On. <laughs> this is not fair. Bailey's been doing it for yeah, like the last Yeah, literally, I've never done a New Orleans accent before. Neither have I. You will be graded on speed, accuracy. Speed, but, but slowness is part of the accent. Speed, mm. accuracy, and flavor. Oh. I just I have a question. Bailey, Dylan, do you need me and Andrew to play this game? Because you guys are already enjoying playing it yourself. <laughs> oh, no. Everyone must be involved. Bailey was the one that said she hates reading out loud. I do not like reading out loud. My secret is that I am, this is not a joke, a little bit dyslexic. So it is hard for me to read out loud. 
Uh, nice. You'll be graded on a score one through five. And then at the okay. end, we will add up your heats, if you will. Oh, the level of spiciness the to spiciness. the jambalaya. You will each do three lines. Our order will be Bailey, Toby, Andrew. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Are you prepared? <laughs> do you want to work on your... What was it? Slow, fastness? Jambalaya. Slowness. It's speed. Jambalaya. Speed. Accuracy. Yep. And flavor. Nerve Main and talent. justice. So if you think Dumbo that you'll if you do it fast or do it accurate. You can't do it both ways. Okay. So I just read the first text message. The first text message. <clears throat> first, I make a quick trick brick stack. Then I'll make a quick trick block stack. You can you can make a quick <laughs> trick chick stack. You can make a t- quick trick clock stack. That was hard. Ooh, that is a little spicy. Bailey, I shall give you a three. I was going to say, I think that's a solid three. Toby, are you ready? I'm ready. Clocks on Fox Tick. Clocks on Knox Talk. Six, six, Brick Tick. Six, six, Chicks Talk. Ooh. Ooh. I was going to give you a three, but you gave it a little flavor at the end. So I do have to give you a four. (laughs) Oh. Oh, God, this is the worst day of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew was an actor as a child. Jambalaya. And here's a new trick, Mr. Knox. Socks on chicks and chicks on fox. Fox on clocks and bricks on blocks. Bricks and blocks on knocks on docks. Ooh. Jambalaya. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to give you a four for that, because you did a good slowing it down, which expects the speed, but that flavor really pushes it up. Ooh. It really added something, that flavor. Do you guys think that we've lost every single New Orleans listener that we have? <laughs> what? We actually had a few, and they are gone now. <laughs> so, Andrew, you'll be reading this one first. All right. Who sews who socks? Who sews who socks? Who sees who sue who sue socks, sir? You see sue 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 new socks, sir. <laughs> wow. Ooh, Someone wow. just committed to saying it incorrectly. Well, I was told that speed was my negative last time, so I tried to go faster. That wasn't 100% accurate, but that was 100% flavorful. I will give that a four as well. Oh, no, yes. I'm not doing so well. Uh, for Bailey. Mm. You're irritating my valve. Hurry up. That's a reference <laughs> to Confederacy of Dunces. Oh, no. Dr. Nut. <laughs> Dr. Nut. Who sews crow's clothes? Sue sews crow's clothes. Slow Joe Crow sews whose clothes? Sue's clothes. Oh, <laughs> that was accurate. And fast. And fast. And spicy. And spicy. I will give that a five. Yeah. What? Nice. That was so slow. Oh, How dare you? That was, uh, that was fast and to the rhythm. It was faster than a Cadillac on the highway that goes past New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> I refuse oh, to be tied with Bailey based on that performance. All right. And Toby, are you ready? I'm ready. Sue sews rose on slow Joe's crow's clothes. Fox sews hose on slow Joe's crow's nose. Nose hose goes some. Crow's rose grows some. Ooh. I will also have to give that a five. Oh. Yeah. For that accuracy and that speed. All right. Is this the last round? This is the last round with Toby kicking us off. When Tweedle Beetle's fight, it's called a Tweedle Beetle battle. And when they battle in a puddle, it's a Tweedle Beetle puddle battle. And when Tweedle Beetles battle with paddles in a puddle, they call it a Tweedle Beetle paddle puddle battle. Ooh. There was one little slip up, but the rest of it was quite masterful. I will give that a four. Oh, excellent, Toby. I believe it is Andrew's turn. It is Andrew's turn. 
When beetles battle beetles in a puddle paddle battle in the beetle battle puddle is a puddle in a bottle. They call this a tweedle beetle bottle puddle paddle battle muddle. Ooh. Mm. I think he lost the accent. <laughs> that did that didn't have as much flavor, so I will give that a four, but I do want to call out the accuracy on that last line. That one I consider. I would quite take a five if you were offering. <laughs> <laughs> now just to go over the skulls. Tobin has thirteen. Andrew has twelve. Mm. And Bailey has eight. Okay. So you need a perfect five in order to beat this. I will not get it. <clears throat> When beetles fight these battles in a bottle with their puddles in the bottle. <laughs> and the bottles on a poodle and the poodles eating noodles. They call this a muddle puddle. <laughs> Tweedle poodle peedle oh, noodle no. poodle puddle poodle. 100 points. <laughs> that was perfect. That was so spicy it hardly even made sense. I'll give that a one. <laughs> Nailed it. So that makes... Tobin, the victor. Yeah. Yeah, way done. Well done, Toby. Please come oh, back, New you. Orleans listeners. Yeah, please. Please forgive us. So congratulations, Toby. Thank you. Good work. Although I do want to call out some of Andrew's quite spicy performance as well. Okay, and that Bailey did a great job, too. And that Bailey did a great job, too. Oh, Bailey did all right. And Bailey was there. Present. Can I use the bathroom? <laughs> um, Dylan, uh, I hear you might have also chosen some books for us at random from our shelves. Yes. Indeed I <coughs> very curious. Indeed I have. It might be time for the choosing. The choosing. Choosing. Uh yeah, the choosing. So Toby, <laughs> now that you won yes. Bon Vivant in sixty seconds, I bet you think you're pretty cool. Yeah. That you're very good. That you have what it no. takes. Don't that you tell have me this. number thirty six, <laughs> The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. Ooh. Yes. I'm very. I thought you were gonna say Cold Heart Canyon. Uh, <laughs> that, that Clive Barker book. No, thank you. Um, I'm really excited for this one. This was this is one that I had been tempted to uh, actually like remove from the podcast shelves because I wanted to read it so bad. Ooh, I just nice. hear. I feel like I've heard a lot of great things about it. I love some other stuff of his, and I'm really excited. Space. It's about space. I think. <sighs> yes. Astronauts. Well, Bailey. Yes. I have to stop. I keep doing the accent. Yes. I know, especially on this very... You have to stop. Why? Or you'll put a hex on me? (gasps) You'll go out into the forest and find number 127, The Witch Elm by Tana French. Ooh. Ooh. I don't think we've done a ton of French book before. No, and you have so many of them. I do. I think I have three on the list. Bailey, do you want to know something exciting? What? This book has a main character named Toby. <gasps> that puts it automatically into the Toby Hall of Fame. Ooh. It does. Um, well, I'm excited. For those of you who don't know, Tana French, she is an Irish author. She does a lot of crime fiction and like sort of dark thriller types. Um, she has a whole series of Dublin Murder Squad. But this one, I think, is a standalone and that involves a scary tree. Is that accurate, Toby? Um, there is a scary tree. I'm excited. I like scary trees. Yeah. There you go. Okay, so that means um, in two weeks on the podcast, I will be reading The Witch Elm by Tana French, and Andrew is reading In the Dream House by Carmen Marie Machado. Nice. That's going to be a good episode. Solid app. Set your calendars. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List podcast. If you consider yourself a bit of a fingersmith, a bit of a pickpocket, 
why don't you go ahead and steal some stars from other people's iTunes reviews and put them on our iTunes reviews. Five stars. Rate us five stars. That was a long way to go, but please go on and rate us five stars um, on any podcatcher of your choice. It really helps the visibility of the podcast, and we really appreciate it. Fingersmith. And if you have the desire in your heart to help us out, word of mouth is our best way of finding new people. In particular, if you have a friend whose tamale or hot dog cart you take over for a while, talk to them, recommend this podcast to them, stop eating up their profits, and um, start eating up their time with this podcast. (laughs) Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books.